Okay, y'all, go ahead and uh, start sitting down, grabbing your seats, quieting down. Yes. Go ahead. Welcome to our friends from All Souls who are here worshiping with us this morning. Uh, glad to have y'all, glad to have y'all here. Uh, so you guys know, uh, we are this, this summer, we have been working our way through the Lord's Prayer. Talking about what prayer means for us uh, as a community, what it means for us as the body of Christ. We've been talking about how prayer is something that really is central to what it means to be human. That we all have this desire to connect with the transcendent. And I was reminded of this this week when I was reading uh, Phil Jackson's coaching memoir called Eleven Rings. Yes, okay. Uh, so that's sports for those of you who are looking for the sports references. Uh, sports, yes. Uh, and this is what Phil has to say in that book. He, he kind of grew up in a, in a home that was super religious and, and he was talking to this guy while he was building a roof with him and he said, I confess that I had a difficult time relating to faith because of my childhood experience. And his friend said, I, I know where you're coming from, but you know, there is no such thing as a grandchild of God. You are not your parents. You need to develop your own personal relationship with God. And so for Phil, this, this launched this lifelong journey of him exploring all kinds of various religious practices and ways to meditate. What it shows is that, is that Phil had what we all have, which is this desire to connect with the transcendent in any way possible. And the disciples, Jesus' disciples had that very same desire so that when they saw Jesus pray, when they heard him pray, they recognized there's something different in the way that Jesus prays. And what they said to him was, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to connect with God the way that you do. And what Jesus gave them was the Lord's prayer. This prayer that we can often treat as incredibly boring and rote and recite kind of from memory. This prayer is a powerful prayer. It's charged. There's a missionary who tells the story of, uh, of teaching uh, in the Soviet Union kind of after the collapse of communism. And he's meeting this woman who came to faith who was, who was pretty young, something like 30, which means she had spent her whole life living in a society that told her that God did not exist, that she did not know anybody in her life who believed that God was real. So he's trying to figure out how did she become a Christian, and this is what she has to say. She said, at funerals, we were allowed to recite the Lord's Prayer. The communists could stamp out a lot of things, but they didn't get rid of that. At funerals, we were allowed to recite the Lord's Prayer. As a young child, I heard those strange words and had no idea who we were talking to, what the words meant, where they, come from, where they came from, or why we were reciting them. When freedom came at last, I had the opportunity to search for their meaning. When you were in total darkness, the tiniest point of light is very bright. For me, the Lord's Prayer was that point of light. And by the time I found the meaning... I was a Christian. It's a powerful prayer. It's a powerful prayer because it contains at its heart uh, the core of the gospel. It's a powerful prayer because it gets all up in our business. It teaches us to live and think and pray differently because of the truth of God and what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. And guys, the line of the prayer that we are in this morning, it's going to get up in your business. Lord, forgive us our 
forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's the line, that's the petition that we're in this morning. And maybe when you hear that, it, it could be that you have an immediate physical reaction to the idea of us talking about forgiveness in church this morning. That you feel your body tighten up and defend. Of course. Of course, because forgiveness is such a hard thing. We struggle with it. We struggle with it as people who are Christians. We struggle with it as people out in the world. And yet, forgiveness is central to the Christian life. And let's just acknowledge here at the beginning, there are all kinds of ways uh, that the call to forgiveness has been used and abused to manipulate people. That's true. Y'all have experienced that. That is not a biblical way of looking at forgiveness. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the sermon, but I just want you to know that straight off the top. Is that forgiving someone is never an excuse to let them continue to abuse you. That's not biblical forgiveness at all. And yet forgiveness, rightly understood and practiced, is central to what it means to walk with Jesus. It's also central, by the way, to what we are doing here together as a community. That if we have any hope of doing this thing called church together long term, we are going to have to be a people who learn how to practice forgiveness with each other because we will hurt each other. If you've been a part of this community for any length of time, you know that's true. It's true if you're going to be a part of a church, but it's true if you're going to be a person who has any kind of meaningful or lasting relationship in your life. Because the people who we love, the people we are closest to, are always going to hurt us. So us learning how to practice forgiveness in the way the Bible teaches us to do it is a part of how we continue to maintain meaningful uh, community in our lives. So Jesus invites us and he commands us to forgive because left on our own, we wouldn't choose it. And Jesus gives us that command not only because he cares about us engaging in community, but because he cares about our own hearts. That the weights that we, the weight that we carry uh, when we refuse to forgive, friends, it is so heavy, isn't it? It's a burden. Jesus, through, through this prayer and through so much of his teaching, is inviting us to cast that burden off. And what this petition does for us, Lord, forgive us our debts as, as we forgive our debtors, it opens us up uh, to repentance in our own hearts. It brings us to a place of recognizing our need for Jesus. It brings us in, into the journey of through prayer releasing the people who have sinned against us. It's a way of coming in and participating in the life and the freedom that we are offered through the gospel. So this morning, we're going to unpack that petition. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Talk about our need to be forgiven, God's provision for our forgiveness, and then how we go about forgiving others. 
So I'm gonna invite Alicia Harrison to come up. Alicia is gonna read for us from Psalm 51. We've been pairing each of these petitions from the Lord's Prayer with another passage of scripture from a psalm to kind of help us understand uh, what the petition means. So Alicia is gonna read for us from uh, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may just be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God, my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Thanks, Alicia. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. And we are thankful that you do not leave us uh, to our own devices, uh, Lord, to our own uh, understandings and whims when it comes to things like forgiveness. Uh, and Lord, we also admit to you that uh, we come here uh, with trepidation, Lord, with our own stories and fears and ask that you would show us, uh, even this morning, God, the goodness uh, of your word and the forgiveness that you're calling us into. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that we've got to talk about uh, as, we, as we work through this request and, and this psalm uh, is the fact that we are a people who need forgiveness. That, that assumption is built in uh, to the petition itself. Lord, forgive us our debts. Assumes that we are a people who have debts that need to be forgiven. Right? It's, it's right here at the beginning of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That we are a, a people 
who have things in our lives that we need to be forgiven for. And the Bible calls those things that we need to be forgiven for sin. And that, that may sound like a very uh, an old-fashioned kind of concept, right? But, but we all live in the reality of sin all the time because we know that when somebody hurts us, it creates a sense of debt of someone owing us something. That's sin. That's what sin does. And what, what these scriptures teach us, what they call us to is to acknowledging that we are a people who sin. Yes, the people out there, but that's way easier to focus on. Yeah, like you and me, that we are people who sin. And we spend, guys, a ton of energy, so much of our energy avoiding that reality, don't we? And I could, we could talk about all the ways that that is true in our modern world and in our current culture, but you know what? It is not a unique problem to us here in the 21st century. This has been something that people have been trying to avoid for all of human history. It's well attested to in the scriptures. In fact, the, the psalm that we are reading this morning, Psalm 51, the kind of the, the heading of the psalm, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So we're going to talk about that in just a second. But what that tells us is that David himself, King David, this, this hero of the Bible, was a person who resisted the reality of him being a sinner with all of his might. It's, it's a very common part of what it means to be human. This psalm, this kind of marquee psalm of repentance throughout all of the scriptures, it comes from a place of David working really hard to hide his sin. A sin that started with the sin of him and Bathsheba. And let me just tell you the story a little bit. There's this uh, David, okay, he's the king of Israel, and he's supposed to be out fighting these battles. But he doesn't do it, he stays at home. And while he stays at home, what he chooses to do is to use his power to take advantage of a woman who he sees in his kingdom and to sleep with her. That's what he uses his power to do. And then she sends him a message and she says, hey, uh, you got me pregnant. And his first instinct is to hide the sin. So what he does is he calls uh, her husband in from the battlefield. And he kind of sends them like the, like the gift basket with the chocolate and the wine and puts the, the flowers on the bed and says, welcome home. And Uriah will not play along. Instead, he sleeps at the king's, like in his hallway. Bold. And because he won't play along and because David is so committed to covering up his sin, what he does is he writes a letter to Uriah's commander and he seals it and he puts it in the man's hand. And when the commander opens it, the instructions are that the commander is to put him at the front of the battle and then pull back so that Uriah dies. And he makes Uriah carry it because he is so committed to covering up his sin. And Uriah dies. And David gets angry about the other people who died. And the commander reminds David, you told me to do this. And then David moves on. No qualms. He continues life as if nothing had happened. He believes he has hidden the sin well enough. Hidden it from himself, hidden it from, hidden it from various people. And then there's this prophet, this guy named Nathan, who comes in when the king is sitting on his throne, and he says, hey, I have a story to tell you. There's this problem out in your kingdom. 
there's this rich guy, and he's got all kinds of sheep, so many sheep, more sheep than you can count. And then he has a neighbor who is really poor and only has one sheep. And this man, this poor man, he loves his sheep. He takes care of it. He, he, like, he, he nurtures it. He brings it into the house and plays with his kids. It's all he's got. But then a visitor came and asked the rich man to make him dinner. And so instead of taking one of his own sheep, he goes and steals the sheep of the poor man and he kills that sheep. And David says, this is an outrage. How dare he? I'm going to do something about that. Because that's what happens when we hide our sin is it makes us self-righteous. I'm going to do something about that. And then Nathan says this to him. Nathan says, you're the man. And I think he says it that quietly. You are the man. And then Nathan turns around and walks out and everything collapses for David. Because what I, what I think he realizes, it, when you know David's story, you know that David spent years on the run from a murderous king named Saul who was seeking him out and always trying to kill him when David had done nothing to deserve it. The book of Psalms is full of David pouring out his heart and his pain and his hurt before God from what it is like when someone is unrighteously attacking you. David knows that experience deeply. And yet when Nathan the prophet says, you are the man, what he realizes is that he he has done what Saul never managed to do. Because Saul never killed David, but David killed Uriah. And his sin is exposed. And friends, we are so like David that we will find any way to avoid calling our sin sin, to admitting uh, that we hurt other people. I've done it. That we say things like, I made a mistake. I messed up. We find all of these words to admit owning the fact that we have hurt people. That when we get called out on our sin, like, oh, well, you, you didn't know what I meant. Let me talk to you about my intentions. I didn't mean to do it as if that makes it any better. Oh, but we are so, so committed to avoiding in our own hearts uh, the sin and the hurt that we have brought to other people. And, in, if, and if in your mind right now you are thinking about the person who has done that to you, what I want to remind you is you are the man. It's you. It's me. We do this. And that when we sin, what it generates is debt. And like we acknowledge, we, we've all experienced that. When someone sins against us, when someone hurts us, that, that what we experience is that they owe us something. That they're, they're in a debt to us. And in the same way that sin does that in our relationships with each other, ultimately sin does that in our relationship with God. And what this psalm makes clear is that all of our sin ultimately is directed toward God. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment.
against you and you only have I sinned. And it's important to clarify, guys, what David is, David is acknowledging that ultimately all of our sin is against God, that when we hurt another human, that that human has been made in the image of God. And the fact that we are able to dehumanize someone or treat them as if they are not God's image is not only an insult to that person, but is an insult to their creator, whose image they bear. And that even when our sin is not against a person, when it's against creation in some way, that's an insult to the creator who created the creation. That ultimately all of our sin is us saying to God, I am rejecting your authority and I will do what I want to do. That I do not find you to be good or lovely or beautiful. Instead, I'm going to make myself king. That all of our sin ultimately is directed against God. It's an offense against God. And because God is a just God, he has to do something about that. And here's the thing. You know that. We know that. And we know that that's good. Think about the Me Too movement for a second. That the excuse for so long uh, for men's horrible behavior has been boys will be boys. Right? And what kind of was rising to the surface in that movement is saying, that's not okay. Saying boys will be boys, that, that, that doesn't, that, that is unjust and justice needs to be done. We as a culture, we're in some ways crying out, God, where is the justice here? Because we know that the death that sin creates, it has to be dealt with. We want it to be dealt with. We just don't want it to be dealt with with us. God, deal with the debt with everybody else, but don't hold my sins against me. But God is a just God. That he will be justified in his words. He'll be justified in his judgments. That what is true about each of us, because we are sinners, is that we stand before God uh, under the weight of a debt that it is impossible for us to deal with, to make up for, to make right before God. You are that man. I am that man. So we all have a need for forgiveness. And God has supplied that need. He's provided for us in that need. And sometimes we like to think about the way that God has provided for us is that God is kind of like a, um, like a, like kind of a creepy old grandpa who like winks at you, you know, like, oh, I'll just kind of like look away, right? But we just talked about, we don't want God to do that. No, with the, with the ways that we have been hurt, that what we say to God is, no, do justice. God, if you are who you say you are, God, if you are loving like you claim to be, you have to do something about the hurt that we have perpetrated on each other. And so instead what we often do is we get busy being super religious. Okay, God's not gonna like wink at this and turn his face away. But now I've gotta be busy paying back my debt. So what can I do to cr crawl out of this hole? What can I do to pay God back? It's like we wanna live the Dave Ramsey version of good works, right? Like I know that we're, do you guys know Dave Ramsey at all? Okay. Uh, well, I know I'm in debt, but the, you know how I'm gonna get out of it? I'm just gonna save. I'm gonna put all my cash in my envelopes and whatever's left over at the end of the month, I'm gonna like put it down on the debt. And we'll do that with our deeds, right? Like, yeah, there's like the basics that you have to do, but I'm going to be like, I'm going to go above and beyond, right? And then I'm going to use that to pay down the debt. Yeah, there is no envelope system that can get you out of this debt with God. 
doesn't exist. In fact, it usually makes the situation worse. You know that. When you've experienced people who live from that kind of self-righteous earning before God, that all it typically does is end up wounding more people. It minimizes sin. The only way out, guys, is that we would be, do any of you watch The Office? Like Michael Scott, when he declares bankruptcy, right? He walks out and he says, I declare bankruptcy. And Oscar, the accountant, has to take him aside and say, hey, like, that's a good first step, okay? But there's a process that's legal, and you've got to go through these steps, and it's really hard for Michael. He has to go through a lemonade stand analogy, but we won't go there, okay? Uh, but we have a legal process in this country where we acknowledge that there are times that people have a debt that is so big they cannot crawl out of it, and the only thing we can do if we're going to reclaim them as a member of society is forgive the debt. It's bankruptcy. We recognize that. We have a legal way of recognizing that. And that God has built a way to recognize that for us because of his great love for us, because of how much he loves his people. He says, I'm going to make a way for you to come back to me. I'm going to deal with the debt that you cannot deal with. Guys, that's a Jesus. That Jesus would come and on the cross, if you think about the garden, of Gethsemane, right before he's crucified. He says, and we've talked about this even in this series, uh, Father, uh, would you take this cup from me? Could this cup pass from me? God, I do not want to have to drink this cup, but not what I will, what you will. You know what that cup was? It's a metaphor that is built all throughout the Old Testament. The metaphor, the cup that Jesus says he's about to drink is the cup of God's wrath. For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. Then in Jeremiah 25, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And what Jesus did on the cross is that he drank that cup of God's wrath so that you and I would never have to. And he drank all of it there is not one drop left in that. There, if, if, if you are in Christ, there is not one drop of God's wrath left for you. He has drained it. It's like Dumbledore at the end of the Half-Blood Prince. Right? When he's searching for these horcruxes. And, he, and he's with Harry, okay, on this island in the middle of an enchanted cave and there's this basin that he has to drink from. And what he knows is that the, the, the potion, just stay with me, okay, the potion that is in this basin is gonna, is gonna rack his body with immense pain. It's gonna undo him. And what he says to Harry is, Harry, you, jeez, uh, uh, you gotta make me drink it. He says, I won't be able to do it myself. I'm gonna beg you to stop me I'm going to beg you to stop giving it to me, but you can't stop. You've got to give it all to me. And he does. And he drinks the whole thing. He chokes it all down. And it undoes him. And that, it's just a picture. It's just a taste of what Jesus did when he drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Oh, he drained it because of how much he loves us. He drained it so that we could be free, that we would be forgiven. Now, God doesn't look away from our sin. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't ask us to earn it. 
says, I have come and borne the punishment for your sins myself. I have done what you could not do because of my great love for you. God, forgive us our debts. And from that place of recognizing that we are the man, that we are people who sin, that we are people who because of God's great love for us have been abundantly provided for, it's from that place that we can even start to have a conversation about what it looks like to be a people who forgive. That foundation is the starting place for all of the forgiveness that comes next. So when you look out in the world and you think, yeah, this world struggles to forgive, yeah, of course we do. It's horrible and it's hard. And without that foundation of recognizing that we ourselves are sinners who God has bled and died for, who has had amazing grace poured out upon us, of course there's no way to even begin the conversation about forgiveness. And and when we start to unpack this topic, uh, it can go in so many directions. Like how we forgive, right? Or what it means to ask other people for forgiveness. Or what the process of reconciliation looks like while you're working through forgiveness. And we're we're just going to limit ourselves this morning to uh, how do I begin, how do I forgive? Because that's what our text is talking about. Lord, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. I'm going to read you this quote from Tim Keller. It's from his book on forgiveness. It says, To forgive then is first to name the trespass truthfully as wrong and punishable rather than merely excusing it. Second, it's to identify with a perpetrator as a fellow sinner rather than thinking how different you are from her. How different you are. It is to will their good. Third, it's to release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt oneself rather than sinking revenge and paying back. Finally, it's to aim for reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship forever. If you omit any of these four actions, you are not engaging in real forgiveness. I would really rather leave out that last sentence. We're going to break that down a little bit, but, but what is true about us as people, what we have to acknowledge, right, is that in the same way that our sin incurs a debt against God, uh, other people, when they sin against us, it, they incur a debt. And that's, that's real. And we are faced with a choice every day with the debts that are piling up, uh, that, that we carry, that we can choose to be debt collectors or we can be people who choose to forgive those debts that that choice is always and ever before us. That we can spend our lives like a collection agency. Getting people to to pay for what they've done to us. You have that right. On a practical level, what is true, and you guys, we've all experienced this, uh, that no one is ever able to, to actually pay the cost of what they've done to us. It doesn't matter how much they understand. It doesn't matter how many conversations we have. It doesn't matter what words they tell us and how heartfelt they are. It doesn't matter how perfect the apology is. What it can never do is fully pay back what has been taken from us when we've been hurt.
There's this book by Colson Whitehead, and he, he says this. Uh, it's called the Harlem Shuffle. And that's this, there's this guy, this character, who has been slighted uh, by this club he wants to get into. He's spent money, doing all these things, kind of checked these boxes to get into this elite social club. He goes to this mixer, and they have all these conversations, and then he finds out he didn't get in. And what he decides he wants is revenge. I'm going to make you pay for what you've done to me. And it takes months of really intense planning to execute uh, this thing that he believes is gonna, is gonna finally pay him back for what's been done. And as it is unfolding, uh, in, the, in the midst of this kind of plot coming to its fruition, the, the character admits this. He says, is this what revenge looked like? This grotesque choreography? Did it feel like revenge? It did not feel like revenge to him. What he's admitting is that all of our best efforts to get our debts back, uh, it never gives us what we're looking for. So in that sense, there's a very practical reason to forgive, but there's also this theological reason to forgive, which is that we are a people who have been forgiven. That our only hope before God is all of the debt that Jesus has cleared away for us. And Jesus tells plenty of parables about this, but he says that if we are a people who understand the weight of what has been lifted off of our shoulders, that all we can do as a people is offer that same forgiveness to others. That our understanding of how much we have been forgiven is intricately connected to our ability to forgive other people. So how do we go about releasing others from these debts that feel so heavy? The first thing we have to do is to admit that a debt has been accrued. To acknowledge that sin has taken place. And you guys have experienced this when, when people uh, come to apologize to you for something and you say, ah, what do you say? Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. But it does, right? It hurt. Yeah. That the first step is that we call sin, sin. That we admit it. And, and we are often so busy trying to shield ourselves from sin. Some of us become really good at shielding other people from it too. That we know the only way to stay in relationship is to do something about the sin. And so the thing that we decide to do is to cover our eyes and pretend like it never happened. Yeah, and I will tell you, that is just another strategy of holding people accountable because it will come out of you. Oh, we've got to call sin, sin, to acknowledge what it is. And the next step is that we would identify with the sinner. Not that we've done all of the same things in the exact same way. That's not what we're talking about. But it's recognizing that I am not better than anybody else. That when we stand before God, that we are all a people who stand condemned apart from the grace of Jesus. That I have a debt that is impossible for me to pay back on my own. And that third step is to release Say, I'm no longer going to attempt to get you to pay for what you have done. I'm calling off the collections agency. And that is a pain, that's incredibly painful because here's what it means. It means that you will have to pay the cost. 
A cost has to be paid. It's the way it works. And in the same way that Jesus paid a cost for us, that to forgive someone else is to say, I'll pay the cost. And here's the thing, the person who you were paying the cost for, they will never know how much it cost you to pay the cost for them. They'll never know. But to say, I'll forgive, is to invite that pain into your life and say, I will eat the cost. God, it hurts. And it's lonely. And it feels like death a lot of the time, doesn't it? It can even feel like a betrayal to our own hurt. but you have been given everything that you need for life and godliness. That when Jesus cleared your debt, he did so much more than clear debt away that he actually gave you more resources than you could ever imagine. And one of those resources is the Holy Spirit who lives in you. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the same Holy Spirit that allowed Jesus when he was hanging on the cross to say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. That same Holy Spirit lives in you. You have that power. Friends, those first three steps of admitting something as a sin, of identifying with the sinner, of releasing someone from the debt, that is something that you and I can choose to do without any engagement with the person who has hurt us. Which I want you to hear is incredibly incredibly ennobling and empowering. Because what it says is the person who hurt you does not have control over your life anymore. That you have the freedom to choose on your own without any input from them. You have the power to do that. You can choose to forgive. And they have no, you don't need their permission. You don't need their understanding. You don't need anything from them to be able to release them from what they have done. That is the kind of power that you have because of what Jesus has done for you. And then we get to the fourth step. Finally, it is to aim for reconciliation rather than breaking up the relationship forever. And I'll just tell you guys, this is the place that it usually goes sideways, isn't it? Because what we have often been told is that to forgive is to forget. That to forgive is to treat the person as if nothing happened. That, friends, that is not biblical. Love has boundaries and sin has consequences. That's just true. There's no way to escape that, no way to get out of that. That part, part of us living in a sin-sick world is learning how do we have boundaries with other people who will take advantage of us and who will hurt us. But because we've gone through this process of forgiving, of naming the sin, of identifying ourselves with the sinner, of releasing from the debt, then we are able with clear eyes to look at the sin that's in front of us, the debt that's landing on our doorstep, the person who we have forgiven and say, God, how are you calling me into dealing with this person? And now my, my setting up of boundaries is not about getting back at you. It's about uh, living a life of love and setting boundaries that are good for me and good for the other person. But doing that work of forgiveness actually now frees me to pursue justice instead of retribution. I get to ask God, what does it look like for me to move toward healing here? And what it may look like to move toward healing is to seek justice. Absolutely. Sometimes the just thing is to bring charges. That's real, guys. Forgiveness doesn't doesn't erase the consequences of decisions. 
but it is in forgiving that we now have the clarity to see with, with, with clear eyes to, to go deep in our journey with Jesus through prayer like we've been talking about and ask him, Jesus, how are you leading me to engage in this situation in a way that is honest, that is truthful, and yet is not about retribution? a place that brings to us incredible freedom in intimacy with Jesus. With our Jesus who though he was sinless came and identified with us as sinners. Who paid the cost on our behalf. Who endured great pain that we would never have to understand it. And who is inviting us into the freedom that comes from entering that journey ourselves. We're going to take some time now. The band's going to come up and they're going to uh, lead us in song and in prayer. And what I'm going to invite you to do uh, is uh, to take some time uh, first to repent yourself. To acknowledge, God, I'm a sinner. I'm a person in need of forgiveness. And to acknowledge those sins specifically uh, before the Lord. To ask him, Lord, would you forgive me? And friends, it is the grace of Jesus that allows us to see our sin because his answer to that is always yes. It's always yes. And so you can, with boldness, name the things that you are trying to hide from yourself because what Jesus has for you in that place is forgiveness, always. That what you are picking up when you repent is not new forgiveness as if it was not forgiven before. Because Jesus, when he died, think about this, all of your sins were future sins to him. Right? He hadn't been born yet. But on the cross, he forgave all of them. He drank all of that wrath down, which now allows us in freedom to look at those things, to draw near to him and to admit that in acknowledging our sin, we're able to experience the greatness of his love for us. Then we'll sing, and then we'll have a time where we're going to practice in our own hearts this process of releasing people from their debts. So pray with me, and then we'll move into this time of repentance together. God, we pray like David. Lord, have mercy on us. According to your steadfast love, God, according to your abundant mercy, would you blot out our transgressions? Would you wash us thoroughly from our iniquity, God, and cleanse us from our sins? For we know our transgressions and our sin is ever before us. God, we bring those sins to you, both the things that we have done and that we have left undone. God, would you, even through your Holy Spirit, be opening up our eyes to the parts of our hearts and our sin that we're blind to so that we can bring it to you and leave it at your feet. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.